0: So we are in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We stand uh, to acknowledge that these are not mere human words, but the words of God. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Amen? Amen? Take a seat. We'll pray. Father, we come uh, before you thanking you that you speak uh, true words and that you speak powerful words and you speak personal words. I pray that today you'd speak to us as a congregation at Redemption Gilbert. I pray that you'd speak to each of us as individuals, that you would give us as a congregation ears to hear and eyes to see. God, that you'd give us as individuals the ears to hear what you're saying to us and the eyes to see it, but God, we ask you right now for your Holy Spirit to empower us to practice it and to live it, to not make this moment a moment of mere hearing and maybe even clapping, but God, make it a a moment of doing. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So Jeremy mentioned this, uh, but we are in full swing of summer. School's out, the temperatures are up. But along with early summer comes another thing, the NBA Finals. Uh, Wow, look at, look at, holla, holla. Who are you cheering for? Oh, wow, the Golden State Warriors. Do any Cavs fans want to stand up and scream too? You can, I'll give you permission. All right, right. So I'm going to be honest with you. I want the Cavs to win. I like LeBron a lot. You can throw tomatoes at me. You can throw tomatoes at me. I I like him a lot. I love Steph Curry, too. But here's the reality. I really do, um, in previous years, I've cheered for the Golden State Warriors. For all of you who aren't sports fans, I apologize. Like, you're just just gonna get it. But Golden State Warriors are playing the Cleveland Cavaliers and they've played multiple times to the finals. In previous years, I have cheered for the Warriors. This year, I'm cheering for the Cavs, not just because it's their year. I'm really into LeBron this year. But here's the truth, I'm a fair weather Cavs and Warriors fan. That's just true. I wouldn't necessarily say bandwagon, because it's not like I'm but I'm fair weather. Meaning, I like them when it counts and when they're good. Because both of those teams have been horrible. And I could have cared less about the Warriors, and could have cared less about the Cavs, even a few years ago when LeBron was playing for Miami. I'm a fair weather fan. Okay, That just means when things are bad, I'm not there. When things are good, I am there. Okay, That's just true. Now here's the thing that makes a passage like this hard. Truth be told, in 2018, United States of America, there's a ton of fair weather Christians. And in fact, there always has been. But this sense of, when it's good for me, I'm there. When it doesn't call me to do too much, I'm there. But I want you to see something. Paul says there is no such thing. There is no such thing of fair-weather Christians. But we live in a time where people may call it another term of cultural Christians. We live in a time where a term like evangelical meant to define something, that you were a Bible-believing Christian. And in many ways, it doesn't even mean that anymore and people use all kinds of other definitions. I have a friend of mine who said what we should start saying is I am a practicing Christian. Now here's what Paul's going to say in this passage is there is a no other kind of Christian. There isn't a non-practicing Christian. There isn't such thing as fair weather Christians. There are practicing Christians. In practicing Christians, understand that fundamentally, this is really simple. It's about God, who is both the source and the summons. Paul's about to communicate and summons us, who all of us who say we believe in these things, there is a summons to live these beliefs out. But as we're called to live this out, you'll realize your own insufficiency, your own lack of power. And he goes, listen, God is both the source And the summons. He is calling you to something and he's the one who enables you to do it. So Paul starts this way in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. He says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Now therefore could be argued as the most important word in all the Bible. Because the Bible isn't presenting a message just of do these things. It's presenting a message of God in what God has done. And if you're in Him, you live out these things. Do you see the difference? If he's the source and the summons, this therefore, which is tying chapter 4 and the rest of the book through chapter 6, there's six chapters in the book of Ephesians, he's tying it to the first three chapters in which he spoke about the greatness, majesty, and grandness of God and the glory, the amazing nature of what he's done. And he's saying, based upon who God is and what God has done, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Here's what he's saying. I am no cultural Christian. I am no fair weather fan. When the temperature gets heated up, I stay in prison. When people tell me to shut up about God and his work through Christ, I say no. When I live in certain ways that the world critiques, it doesn't matter. God is God, and Christ is the Lord of all, therefore I am a prisoner. And he says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. I will appeal to this all the time with you You guys, is to feel the emotion in the Bible. This word urge literally is, I implore you, I beg you, I exhort you, I call you, right? Whatever word you wanna put to that, what he's saying is I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now the only way we can be urged to walk this way is if we remind ourselves or maybe for the first time, teach ourselves, what is our calling? This same Paul in the previous chapter, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, says that it's through the church. Now remember this. Slow down. The book of Ephesians is written to a region, multiple churches in a region. But he's writing to churches, gathered people. And what you have to understand about churches is that in Paul's vision, in the Bible's vision, and in Jesus' vision, the church isn't a building. Can I just get you to shake your head that you get that? It isn't a building. I know we say we're going to church, and we mean going to the building. It'd be more accurate to say we're going to be with the church. The church isn't a service time. The church is the people who've been called out by God through the faith he has granted to us by his grace to live in such a way to display to the world God's real, He is the way, the truth, and the life, and in fact, that's displayed, and the world is saved through Jesus, okay? So, I therefore, at prison of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. The calling, I just said, the manifold wisdom of God, the manifold wisdom of God that God is bent on getting out there. He is committed to getting out there. It's his purpose to get the manifold wisdom of himself out there. Ephesians 3.10 says that the manifold wisdom of God will be made known through the church. Us, right? Go ahead and laugh. That's what it feels like, doesn't it? If you're honest, especially those of you who've grown up in the church or been around it very much, or you just watch it from a distance. That's a laughable phrase. What makes it even more laughable is he says, the manifold wisdom of God, this is Ephesians 3.10 to remind you again, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the principalities and powers, the unseen powers, the devil, the demonic realm, right? The manifold wisdom of God will be made known through the church? Like laugh, that sounds insane, (laughs) You're going, I know these people. They know me. We're not that much different than anybody else. In fact, we're not really different at all than anybody else. But he's saying that's our calling. In 2008, uh, I had the opportunity to go to China and study there. When I was in China, we were three different places, but three main cities. We were in Beijing. Anybody remember what happened in Beijing in 2008? The Olympics. So Beijing looked amazing. I had been in New York like two weeks before, and I get to Beijing, and the streets are wide. It's this booming, bustling city, but everything looked clean, and I was snowed. You know what that means? I was meant to think that's what it was always like, but it was actually just because the Olympics were there. But Beijing was an incredible city. We then went to Xi'an, and Xi'an felt like traditional China, right? The smog, the air, like you're coughing, people are riding around on scooters. It's old feeling China. Then we went to Shanghai. And I don't know anything to say about Shanghai other than like, like you're looking at buildings that they just build and there's a hole in the middle of it. And I'm sitting there with this Chinese guy. I'm like, why would they build a building with a hole in it? And he said, so they can say, because we can. (laughs) That Shanghai feels like the Jetsons. Some of you guys are too young to know what the Jetsons are. But it was this cartoon of the future where people don't drive cars. Meet George Jetson, his boy Alroy, Jane, his wife. If you don't remember, I watched a lot of cartoons as a kid. But it reminds you of the Jetsons. You're like, there's this future land. You walk into malls and there's lasers flying everywhere. So that same man that said they'll build a hole in a building because they can, he said, you got to understand this about Shanghai. Shanghai is built by the Chinese with their eyes directly at Hong Kong. Does anybody know who built Hong Kong? Come on, history majors, anybody? The British. So he said, Shanghai is built to look at the British and say, anything you can do, we can do better. That's what Shanghai is. It's this display. Let us show you the power and might of Shanghai. Not Shanghai, of China. Now, God is taking individual, normal, everyday sinners, strugglers, fumblers. He's calling them to himself. And here's the picture Paul presents in the whole New Testament. Each one of us is a living stone being built into this spiritual house, a temple, that would declare to the principalities and powers, the unseen realm, and to the rest of the world. God is God and there is no other. There's one God. And this God sent his son, the Lord of lords and the king of kings, that he's the way, the truth, and the life. But it's going to be manifested through the church. That's our calling. So as we play this out more and we go, well, what does this look like, calling? We can be helped because there's a parallel passage that Paul, who wrote Ephesians, wrote in Philippians, and it's Philippians 127, and he says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Do you see that? In the other one, it said, I urge you to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Here he says, live worthy of the gospel So these are interchangeable terms. Our calling is the gospel. Now the gospel is the truth of Jesus in his life, his death, in his resurrection, and his ascension. So if we're to live into the calling of the gospel, here's in simple terms, we follow Jesus. Now that's way crazier than you think. Because if the shape of Jesus' life is that in his living, he pursues a death on behalf of the world, and it's only in his death, his costly love that he finds his resurrection, us living into our calling is living into that shape of the gospel. Now see this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So remember the one, one, one. That's a big deal for Paul. But calling is the shape of the gospel. He then says this in Ephesians 5:1. This is all to build out what it looks like to be the spiritual house. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, if I just gave you that right now and said, hey, your calling is to imitate God. That kind of seems like a big task, right? (laughs) Huh? Like, how do you imitate God? Do you remember the moment in the Gospel of John? I've mentioned this before, but Philip tells Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus looks back at this man, Philip, and he says, Philip, have you been with me so long that you don't know. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So again, just like we said with Philippians, imitating God is following Jesus, is watching his life and listening to his words and doing what he did and obeying what he said. Now, this is a really big deal, and this is all over Paul, all throughout the New Testament. There's this moment in the book of Galatians where Paul recounts in chapter 2 of Galatians a moment he had with Peter, where Peter wasn't living into unity, love, and oneness. He was living into division, and Paul knows this. Division is the way of the devil. Unity and love is the way of God. Fear is the language of the devil, which leads to division. Love is the language of God, which leads to unity which leads to reconciliation. So Paul hears of and sees Peter dividing from those who aren't like him, the Gentiles, and he says this in Ephesians 2.14, but when I saw that there, led by Peter, conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, other phrases are, it wasn't in line with the gospel. The gospel unites, sin divides. When it wasn't in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, you live like a separated one and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He's just shoving it in his face, going, you aren't living in line of what you believe. Now that gets us where Paul's saying live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called because if all calling means is that through us the manifold wisdom of God would be on display through the church you go i don't even know what that means it sounds beautiful it's something that it sounds like i want to be a part of but then you start going like but i got to take my kids to games and you're telling me i got to be in a small group and i'm trying to get to church every sunday And I don't know where my money's at in the midst of this. And to be really honest with you, I don't even like my spouse. And you're telling me that through people like me, the manifold wisdom of God's going to be made on display to the principalities and powers? And we laugh. But here's what I love about Paul. He says that the manifold wisdom of God is going to be made known through these ways. Look at what he says next. Through humility and gentleness. Patience by bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, here's what I love about this the only reason he would be urging them to live like this into their calling, the reason he says, I urge you, and he has to say, I urge you, not I recognize in you, is because there's a bunch of people in the church that are proud, that are brash that are impatient, and that are dividing from one another. And he still says that the manifold wisdom of God will be made known through the church. Now, Paul is bent on these two things in this section. Holiness, he's bent on seeing the church be holy, which means like God. So the Bible says, be holy, God says, as I am holy. Holy. We just said this, be imitators of God, which means mimic Jesus. Take his words seriously. Know that obedience is not an option. We are practicing Christians, not cultural Christians. That's Paul's passion here is holiness and unity. Unity and holiness. Now, let me make a point We live in a time where there are all kinds of people living in different kinds of community. And we are living in a time, and I just want to make this known, where lots of people are leaving the church, whatever that might mean. And I have a lot of friends in these categories or people I'm connected to that would be ones who are leaving the church. And they really critique the church, and many times rightfully so. So hear me say that. Many times, rightfully so. But they'll move into groups of relationships and they'll talk about how loved they are. I've never been more loved and accepted in all my life. And I want to affirm where they're truly being loved and accepted, but I also want to say, well, sure, you're loved and accepted because there's no standards. It's whoever you are, you are, live whatever way you want. Here's what I want you to hear me say. Unity is relatively easy without holiness. That's relatively easy. Now, the truth is, they're going to divide. If you come in and go, I don't think that's right, they're going to divide. But they're going to have their own standards. Everybody has their own standards. But let's just for now, just get the point. Unity is relatively easy without holiness. Now let's go to the other side. Holiness is relatively easy without the pursuit of love and unity. I can gather a group of people who think just like me, politically, doctrinally, philosophically. We live in the same neighborhoods. We like the same things. We're all Warriors fans, right? And I can go, hey, if you're a Cavs fan, get out of here. Or if you believe a little bit differently than me, get out of here. Or if you believe something about the world that I don't believe, get out of here and then we can sit together and go, we're all the ones who are right, we're holy. Well, sure you are. That's where the statement, us four no more shut the door comes from, right? Like, I mean, pretty soon it's just you and you're the one going, I alone am saved and the one who gets it right, right? Well, no. And Paul isn't separating these things. He's saying holiness is not holiness without a loving, a bent upon loving pursuit of unity. And unity is not unity without truth, without holiness in a pursuit of what that means. So you get what I'm saying in that? Unity is relatively easy without holiness. Holiness is relatively easy without unity. Paul's saying in Christ, the pursuit has to be both. And the way in which you begin to live into this is to focus on these you, with all humility and gentleness with patience in bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, let me break these down just for a minute so that we can get kind of dirt under our fingernails of what this ultimately looks like. The word humility literally is like tender humility, The word humility gets defined in the Bible by Jesus. Remember what I'm saying, if we're gonna live this way, we gotta think Christianly, which means through the lens of Christ. Humility's opposite is pride. Pride is stuck on self, pride is convinced everybody else is the problem, I'm not. Jesus says and models, read Philippians two, that what humility is, is considering the needs of other people as more significant than your own. Now let me just ask you, how are you doing in this? Because this is not easy. This is a deep-rooted commitment in being convinced that it's more blessed. I will be happier in giving. I will be happier in putting their needs ahead of my own. That's humility, a belief in that, in your bones. Consider the needs of others as more significant than yourself. Humility, gentleness in contrast to brashness, in contrast to your words being a dagger. This is where gentleness is spoken of as a fruit of the spirit in the same, in the book of Galatians. It's spoken of as a fruit of the spirit. Gentleness. Now, the opposite of gentleness manifests itself oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes in our words and or our lack of words So you could be one who doesn't show gentleness at all and not humility by how you stonewall people. Or you struggle in the midst of your home and so therefore you just, I'm not gonna speak about it. Or you do speak but your words are like daggers. This is when James says, fires are created, forest fires that demolish all kinds of things by our words. The author of the Proverbs says words can kill or words can give life. They can be poison or fruit. You choose. Gentleness understands that the words that we speak, the way that we act, has to be gentle and living out Jesus' command of treat others the way you want to be treated. This thing that was taught to me in kindergarten but never accredited it to Jesus, and then I began to read my Bible after I became a Christian, I'm like, God, Jesus is the one who said all this stuff. This is incredible, but it demands humility. He then says patience, and I I like this a lot because I am oftentimes very impatient. And I love that he's telling people, I urge you to live in a manner worthy of your calling. Be patient because they were impatient. Now, if any of you have ever had children or have children, and I just say bedtime, you're going to go, I'm not even a Christian. Like, (laughs) proves I'm not a practicing Christian. Just shut your mouth and go to bed. Was that humble? Was that gentle? Was that patient? Like, I'm going to hell, right? That's just the reality of bedtime, but then there's these realities in our work life, in our school life, in our home life, that all have to do with this patience of how in the world can I become patient well, he says this, bearing with one another, which means it's hard to bear with one another. That's these words, long-suffering, that you go the distance, that you understand in treating them the way you wanted to be treated. You want to be given grace, but you don't want to give grace. You can't do that. You got to be gentle. You got to give grace. You got to be humble. You got to say, I consider their needs as more important than my own. I need to live into patience. And here's the thing. It says, bearing with one another in love, eager, be bent upon that word Mean means to maintain the unity of the Spirit. You can't forget what I said before. God is not just summoning, summonsing us, is that a word, summonsing? Whatever it is, calling us to live like this. He's the source of the living. So when you look at this and you go, man, that's the way the church lives this out? And you begin to go, I can't possibly do this. Well, Jesus knew that. Remember the words when Jesus said, with man, these things are impossible. With God, all things are possible. Be filled with the Spirit because the Spirit desires what's contrary to your flesh. So be filled with the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit are what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Are those the fruits of Tyler Tyler just get in within yourself. Get within yourself and bring out patience. Impossible. I'm an impatient, proud, brash punk who considers my needs is more important than anybody else's needs. So what do I have to do? Lord, help me. Fill me with the Spirit today to live out this reality. If I'm going to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace so that the world may see, God is a God who's about love and unity, then it gets displayed in how we live amongst one another. Everywhere and all the time. There's a quote that I absolutely love that I'm going to read to you right now. And it's by a very famous woman who gave up her life to live amongst the poor in Calcutta. Who could this be? Teresa of Calcutta, right, Mother Teresa. And what I love about this, hold on, don't read it yet. What I love about this is you'd think based upon her life, she'd start by going, you really wanna live a life of meaning? Go serve the poor in Calcutta. Go serve the poor. And it's not that she doesn't say those things. But when she talks about being eager to maintain unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, she says this, peace and war start within one's own home. If we really want peace for the world, let us start by loving one another within our families. Sometimes it's hard for us to smile at one another. It's often difficult for the husband to smile at his wife, for the wife to smile at her husband. In order for love to be genuine, which is a phrase in the Bible, let your love be genuine. In order for love to be genuine, it has to be, above all, a love for our neighbor. We must love those who are, listen to this word, nearest to us in our own family. From there, love spreads towards whoever may need us. It's easy to love those who live far away. It is not always easy to love those who live right next to us. It's easier to offer a dish of rice to meet the hunger of a needy person than to comfort the loneliness and the anguish of someone in our own home who doesn't feel loved. How about we just sit with that for a minute? That just speaks. And it's this principle in the Bible of this proximity principle. Is you are most revealed by that which is most proximate to you. Not that people distant from you think you're loving, but could those who are closest to you say they are bent upon maintaining unity in love, in the spirit, in the bond of peace. Church, the only way we live this way is by the power of the spirit, which means we first got to start and confess where we're not confess by in our arrogance we're dividing from all kinds of people for all kinds of reasons that we aren't living in to God's vision for what this is and that's what it is it's God's vision which is why this section Paul then says this there's one body one spirit just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call one Lord one faith one baptism one God right what's the key word there one (laughs) Here's what he's saying. There's one body. Folks, God isn't a polygamist. You know the church is called the bride of Christ? There are multiple brides, right? This isn't sister wives. He has one bride. You don't like people in his bride? You better go fix it because one body means there's one spirit. We're not living into unity. We're living out division. You know what we're living in? The flesh, not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us to the fruits of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You think you're great because you divide? I'm right, they're wrong? That's called the opposite of humility. That's pride. One body, one spirit, just as you are called to one hope. Let me say this. One hope means how many hopes? One, folks, if you're in Christ and you understand he's the Lord of the world, for the world and for us, not just for us, there are multiple hopes. There's not a hope in who the next president's gonna be. There's not a hope in who this president's gonna be. There's not hope in that party or the other party or the development of a new party. There isn't hope in better governance or necessarily better schools. We will work for all of those things under the rubric of love our neighbors as ourselves, but we will never forget there's one hope that belongs to your call. What's the hope? It's in the one Lord. Who's the Lord? Jesus Our hope is founded in him. There's one faith, not multiple faiths. There's one baptism. And here's why, folks. Dividing line of not true and true. The line in the sand is this. There's one God. This is a big word, monotheism. Monotheism means if there's one God and he really created the whole entire world and he really is who he says he is, then all of us are under his authority. He's not under ours. And the people in your home and the people in your workplace aren't under your authority. You're under God's. And God desperately cares, is bent upon love. He's bent upon unity. There's one God, the father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Here's the conclusion. Therefore, be eager to maintain unity that comes about through the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Father, our prayer under the authority of Christ in the full acknowledgement there is one God, the Father, who is over all, through all, and in all, God, we say by your spirit, make us one. In Christ's name we pray, amen.